Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to your first episode of Horror Vanguard for the holiday season. I'm Ash, and with me, as always, is the Licorice Guy, aka John the Licorice Guy. How's it going, the Licorice Guy, comma John? <laughs> good, good. Really happy to be here. Feeling, feeling spooky. Feeling seasonal. Feeling Christmassy. It's, um, it's all good. Are you, are you feeling festive? Uh, you know what? I am feeling festive. I am feeling I've, festive. I've, uh, I've been decking the halls uh, with boughs of holly. I've got jingle bells everywhere. Uh, I mean, what else do you need? What else? Do you, the only thing, the only thing that's terrible about uh, the holidays in the UK is hearing the same festive music over and over and over and over again. There's like three songs which always come out at Christmas, and which, like will just get seared into your brain, and you'll always you'll be you'll be hearing them the entire month of December, and let's be honest, most of November as well. So Christmas 2017, I was in the UK, and I remember that, and I, I unironically loved it because, like, uh, it, it, ha it had, like, I mean, like, obviously, I, I had only gone through one of them, but everything was so, like, quaint and Christmassy, and, and here it's like, oh, man, it's just whatever, whatever pop singer is, is thirsty for a paycheck cranks out another fucking Christmas cover. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. I'm I'm just being I'm just being uh, a cynic. I'm, I'm I should be visited by the the ghost of of Noddy Holder, uh, <laughs> who will who will teach me that I too should wish it could be Christmas every day. <laughs> well, speaking speaking of Christmas wishes and and Christmas joy, uh, recently uh, we we had a conversation. With the wonderful JG Michael of the podcast Parallax Views, uh, everyone should check that out. Uh, we've we've uh, been a guest on their show. We've had them on two episodes, so mm -hmm. uh, fantastic stuff. But during during the course of our jovial and seasonally spirited conversation, we we discussed a fantastic and uh, very very um, I'll say rare uh, Christmas uh, classic, and that's the 1989 French movie. Uh, 3615 Code Pierre Noel, a.k.a. Game Over, a.k.a. Dial Code Santa Claus, a.k.a. Code 3615. Uh, yes, yes, we did. Um, I don't know. I don't know why that was a thing that so many of these films had like multiple titles or released under multiple names. Um, for this one, I think it's uh, I think it's just because it's a French film originally. And so every time it's kind of hit the market, they've gone for like re-rebrand stuff like dial code santa or dial code santa claus is a little silly you know game over kind of leads into like the toys and the computer yeah. stuff we'll get into later uh it, you're missing out my favorite alternate title of, yeah. for this film which is hide and freak i didn't even know that was one that's amazing which is, which is just perfect yeah i think um out of all the titles dial code santa claus is my favorite because <laughs> that that sounds that sounds very whimsical that sounds like a children's movie that does not sound like the movie we're about to watch 
uh, it, it that genuinely does not sound like the movie we are um, about to talk about. Um, but as usual, before we start talking about the film, I think it's only fair that you. Okay, I, just just bef- before before we go into the the segment that is now kind of horror vanguard canon, which is your amazing plot recaps of the film. It has been said by some cynical listeners, you know who you are, that um, Ash's plot recaps are not always, strictly speaking, 100% literally what happens in the films. You know, that, uh, that is a contentious opinion, but I can see where they're coming from. But um, in this case, yeah, I'm pretty sure that Ash is about to tell you exactly what happens in the film. Uh, with that in mind, Ash... What is what is what is Hide and Freak, aka Game Over, aka uh, Codename Santa Claus, about? 1989's Code 3615 Pierre Noël is a French cinematic masterpiece that somehow manages to channel the the energy of movies that have yet to come into existence by the time the, this film's release, Richie Rich, Home Alone, and funnel them directly through Rambo. If you've ever wanted to experience the Christmas joy that's being a little rich child who has access to every every toy imaginable and and yet go through a grueling hellscape as you're being hunted down by the Santa Claus you so desperately wanted to meet, this film's for you. Uh, yes, it is. Um, it is. It is. It's really interesting and also really, really very strange. The whole film is available on um, YouTube and I strongly recommend you check it out. Um, so we we are we are put into this rural, technologically advanced mansion, which is inhabited by our um, the young hero of the story, uh, Thomas, uh, who lives with his extremely wealthy mother and the elderly, um, diabetic, partially sighted grandpa. Um, and this is where our story t- t- takes off. Uh, where where should we start with this? <laughs> so I think I think interestingly we need to start talking about this film by talking about uh, another young boy who needs to use his toys to save Christmas, and that's Kevin McAllister. <laughs> yes, I knew this was going to come up. <laughs> I mean, this this literally has to come up. This, this film is Home Alone one year before Home Alone came out. Uh, it is indeed. So, uh, famously, the director—I think the the director sued, right, over this. Yeah, basic, yeah, yeah. Saying that the team behind Home Alone had essentially just made his movie without giving them any credit. Um, <laughs> Which, after you after you watch uh, Dial Code Santa, aka Game Over, aka Dangerous Game, uh, is it Dangerous Game or is it Deadly Game? Deadly Games. Yeah, deadly Game. Uh, yeah, yeah, but like this, this one hundred percent is it's literally like. So, so the thing, the thing that I found really interesting is like for the longest time, like uh, like Crack dot com has released twenty articles like this, and everybody always jokes about like, oh, like what if Home Alone was real and serious and dark? Like, what kind of injuries would they have? How fucked up would that be? Uh, Dial code Santa Claus is one hundred percent. What if Home Alone was real and really dark? Yeah, and it goes there like you like you start watching the film and you go oh it's it's going to be like a slightly saccharine children's christmas movie and then our 
uh, main character, the young Thomas, starts talking to strangers on the internet, um, and there is a a local. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're they're, they're homeless or destitute or, but th- there's there's this local man who is very interested in children in a way that is deeply unsettling. Who pretends to be Santa and gets gets this kid's address. And things just get darker and and weirder from there. That is that is accurate. <laughs> this movie is is surprisingly dark. You know, like like it it definitely comes off in the first like five or ten minutes as like uh, as Home Alone. You know, little boy is going to get stuck home alone during Christmas and he's going to have to fend off a baddie using all of his goofy toys and wacky know how. Mm-hmm. But we we quickly come to the realization that like this kid, it's not goofy toys and wacky know how. It's this kid is like a paramilitary guerrilla insurgent. Yep. <laughs> So he is, he is, so uh, Tomas is this sort of like boy genius, I think. We're well, he's, to he's also foreshadowing another one of Macaulay Culkin's early roles, and that's Richie Rich. Yep. So he he's enormously wealthy. He is like a bit of a computer prodigy. And he spends, like the film opens with him basically enacting some war games with the help of his adorable dog, JR. Um he dresses up as, as Rambo. There is the soundtrack has this kind of ripped off version of eye of the tiger playing. Mm-hmm. And he ends up capturing JR in this trap door with a net underneath it that he's built in his mansion. Um, so he is, he's from, from, he is, he is always already this kind of vigilante figure. Um, but it just becomes much more serious as the film goes on. Yeah, and I think it even it even starts off with a little darkness to it. Because like I find it I find it really interesting that because this movie naturally demands to be critiqued in concert with Home Alone. Yeah, yeah. And uh Kevin McAllister, portrayed by young Macaulay Culkin, although Macaulay Culkin's first cinematic role was 1984's uh The Midnight Hour in ABC TV movie. He played a trick-or-treater, thank you very much. Um but so Kevin McAllister is is really just kind of like your your every child, yeah. Right, like he's young, he's, he's he's creative, he's got a lot of toys he can do cool stuff with. Like this guy, like Thomas, uh, it's not necessarily the whimsy of a child, you know. It's not like uh, because like Macaulay Culkin was like, oh, like I'm gonna put I'm gonna put some jacks at the base of the stairs, or like. I'm going to I'm going to like go go into the garage and get dad's dad's uh dad's paint cans and tie those up with string, you know. It was like like I'm going to I'm going to get my older brother's pellet gun, you know. It was very very whimsical, very childlike stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, yeah. I also think it, this 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 film this film in contrast, like Home Alone is a kind of slapstick comedy and it's very much like it's very much a kids film. Uh this I was I was doing some research into this. This this premiered at a children's film festival, uh, and if you have seen the film, you will know that this is perhaps not the most child friendly of uh, of of cinematic works. Because even though it starts out with um, Thomas, you know, having a great kind of tooling up scene as as a little mini Rambo with his mullet. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, His hair kicks so much ass, by oh, the way. It's so 1980s. It's it is, the most it's, 1980s thing I've ever seen. It is the most high-powered mullet hockey hair I've ever seen. And to be quite frank, I am jealous. Uh, but but totally, this film is is not a kids' movie. Honestly, like, the, I, I the think th- the threat. I mean, I think the, the way to think about it is the threat, right? The threat and the violence at play, because. So, like, the premise is that Thomas wants to see if Santa Claus is real, so he sets yes. up it's, really he does a cute little trap. Yeah, uh, video cameras all throughout his house because he can. Um, but in in Home Alone, for example, the violence is always slapsticky. Everyone always gets up even after they've been like smashed in the head with a paint can, and like we're always on Kevin's side. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this, the violence is. Not as spectacular, but feels a lot more real. It's, very, it's much more grounded. There is there is a horrible uh, scene really early into the cat and mouse of when this mysterious, nameless Santa Claus breaks into the house, where um, Jr. the dog is uh, stabbed in the throat with a cake server, mm-hmm. uh, and it's that is uh, it is really really brutal. Um, and it's it's portrayed really because it's shot with a flat angle from the perspective of Thomas, who's watching it and hiding. And yeah, and, so and the I'm fight. Like, if this was a kids movie, that is one surefire way to like seriously traumatize the viewer. Kill, killing a dog is one of those lines that cinema usually doesn't cross. That's usually kind of like, and this movie does that again later uh, when Thomas gets stabbed. But we'll get into that. And I, but I, I think I'm going to disagree here. I, I think this is a perfectly fine children's film. It's just also a very dark children's film. Like uh, I yeah, think, okay, I, yeah, I think, I think that's a, I think that's a fair point. It is a kids it, film, but it's not like a kind of stereotypical. No, you, you, I mean, like I wouldn't recommend sitting, sitting the family down Christmas morning and popping, popping in this VHS. You wouldn't, <laughs> but but it definitely like it reminds what? me of older older Christmas stories, and it reminds me of older Christmas legends where there was something kind of dark and horrific that was also part of the holiday. You know, you got yeah, like you absolutely. got like the Krampus, you've got that like Norse uh, Christmas cat that hunts people down. Uh, yes, the I, the Icelandic cat that um, yes. will eat you if you if you don't get kind. new clothes. Yeah, if you if you, yes, if you don't get new clothes. Mm-hmm. And it, and it reminded me of that. And it also, it reminded me of like uh, a Christmas Carol, you know, the classic Charles Dickens thing, right? I mean, like that's a perfectly good, acceptable thing to tell kids, but it's also about how this dying old man needs to confront his own wickedness and the horrors of society. And, and his, uh, the, the nightmare of your possible death and existing yeah. in a universe that, that never cares that you existed in the first place. And like, like, I don't think that like, so it, it, it's very, it's very uh, scary and sad and tragic when the dog gets stabbed. And there's a lot of moments in this movie that are very tense and very dark. But I don't think that any of that crosses a line where I would say, okay, kids can't see this movie. You know, like, like yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's nothing that's like too intensely gory or like because so our, our Santa Claus guy. <clears throat> um, we we don't know too much about uh, the guy who plays Pierre Noel in this film. Uh, his character. Um, but like what we do know is he's like he's he's some kind of uh he's he's got like some kind of like violent disorder and we see in an early scene where like a little girl is sitting on his lap and he's like and like before that he was like he's like happily doing like oh here's some candy kids haha i'm a happy santa claus Hmm. and his little girl sits on his lap and he's like he's like awkwardly stroking the side of her face and it's not it's not sexual right i don't think the movie tries to convey that he's like a, a pedophile 
but it definitely tries to convey that something's kind of off with this guy but then she the little girl starts talking about how he doesn't like or that she doesn't like uh his face and how he's not a real santa claus and she pulls the beard away and this guy like full-on smacks her like down to the ground yeah and like that's like that's really grim but i also think like i think kids could watch that like this is part of the reality kids face and i don't think this movie uh necessarily crosses a line no, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's, um, I think that's a fair point. I think that's a fair point. I think in contrast to, you know, the very kind of saccharine mainstream kids yes. movie, then this would not be something that would fit in with that. But I think you you brought up the the character of Père Noel, um, who is really really unsettling. Like there is no, like he's introduced in one of the very first scenes in the film where I think it's the opening credits actually where we see like some local kids in the neighborhood having, are having a snowball mm-hmm. fight um, and then this figure walks into frame and decides that he would like to join in yeah. uh, and the kids all scatter all, yep. all just like flee so clearly he is a kind of known quantity um, and then he uh, ends up uh, using one of the old uh, Minitel uh, terminals that used to exist all, all throughout France um, to, to talk to uh, Thomas, who's, who is online and doesn't believe that Santa Claus is real anymore. And so after that, and after uh, the child has unfortunately given out his address, don't, you don't need to tell Santa where you live, kids. That's, that's kids, if, you're, if, if, you're, if your kids are listening... Uh... Do not hack into the to the 80s French Minitel network and give out your address to someone claiming to be Santa Claus. That is just a recipe for disaster. Exactly. Um, and he he decides to he decides to get a job at a department store as a Santa, and this is where he meets this little girl uh, who says, "You're not you. I don't like your face. You're not the real Santa Claus." And he just slaps this small child in front of the store's manager and immediately gets fired obviously mm-hmm. and, and then decides that he's going to find the friend that he made over the internet uh and that is that's that's how this kind of films but i find it really interesting that there is there's no name there's no backstory uh or not really and his motives are not necessarily all that clear which i think actually makes him more of an intimidating figure oh yeah yeah i mean like i really like it that like we we know we know that he has some kind of like deranged violent personality but that's it yeah that's all we know and then we get the idea that kids can either sense that when the kids run away like they kind of know like okay this guy's giving stranger danger vibes yeah yeah or or he is kind of like a community menace you know and, yeah. and the kids know that oh when that guy comes around we should we should get out of town yeah absolutely but i, I definitely agree like i think if he would have had a more nuanced backstory it would have not nuanced, but like if they would have like given him a name and fleshed out his backstory, it would have kind of taken away. It would it would have detracted? This movie is like a crisp seventy minutes, and, I mean, and that was honestly the best thing about it. <laughs> that's true, but there there are also like things which feel a bit like they just decided to do this to to pad out the runtime. I mean, let's, yeah, let's yeah, definitely. I, I could have done with maybe one or two fewer like slow mo sequences. Uh, where you just see like somebody walking down a hallway for a minute at a time. Yeah, I really liked some of those. Uh, the the better executed one, like there's a scene um, after 
the evil Santa Claus gets the upper hand on uh, Thomas and his grandfather. And uh, Thomas is kind of running around his own home, but it's it's built it's like this labyrinthian mansion, and he's getting lost in the maze, and like it's just shot after shot of him like reaching dead ends and running around corners, and then the, the camera just kind of tilts and and then yeah. like cranes up, and then as it does that, we get this flat bird's eye shot, and it's it, the house is literally designed like a maze, and and young Thomas is running around like a rat, and the decorations on the floor. Which the, the tiling uh, up until this point had just looked like kind of, you know, a random pattern, you know, random colors. But as it as the camera tilts up, we realize that it's eyes watching that's from my, inside the labyrinth. And it was so, oh, so good. That's one of my favorite sequences in the entire film where mm-hmm. you realize that he's wandered into into this uh, labyrinth. Yeah, I, I thought that was that was fantastic. And I think that like metaphorically that has so much to say on the labyrinthian nature and excess in these mansions and the hyper surveillance that thomas himself wanted to employ is now mocking him you know his camera network is useless in the face of this threat yeah exactly exactly um yeah i i mean i don't know if i would if i would say that there needed to be like a clearer motivation but i just think no i just think he's a great villain um because there are so there are so many like there are multiple moments where he like catches him and like lets him go you know there's a moment where he says i i caught you i win now it's your turn and then just lets him go Mm -hmm. so there's this whole the the kind of it's it's all never made explicit but this is this is why it's i imagine they went with the subtitle of what do you say deadly game deadly games yeah Deadly Games. Also, game because over. It, it it seems to just be it seems to just be like a, a sport for this Père Noël figure who is not reluctant to to just murder people. Uh, there is there is the van. He hides in a van to get to the house, and he kills the van driver. Um, it's on an estate, and the estate has like uh, like a housekeeper, like some some staff, uh, and they're killed off as well. Uh, there is Jr. the dog, which is very sad. So, like, this is someone who is not afraid to use violence, but on the on on the figure that he's most interested in, it's all like a sport. I do I do enjoy that that complexity with with our villainous Santa Claus. I do enjoy that he's not just kind of a blank force of murder that we really don't know what's going on with him, but it's, it's different. It's not what we're used to seeing in these kinds of slasher killers. Yeah, absolutely. You absolutely. know, like, like Michael Myers just goes to town on anyone who gets in his way. There, there's really no, there's nothing under the hood there. There's just murder. But with the Santa Claus, like, I, I think it's incredibly interesting that part of this is him playing a game. Part of this is him just being incredibly violent you know, he, he's got this fixation with like being childish himself and wanting to to play with children and hang out with children. Yeah, which is just it's just deeply unsettling. Um, and and it's a, he's like the the actor who uh, plays the character is gives a really good performance. And it's oh, he's so good at having crazy eyes. <laughs> um. But yeah, there's. I think I think Père Noël is is a great slasher killer villain, um, and and you know, well, we talked a, a little bit about this with Parallax Views, but it, it ties into really 
a really old fear and a very kind of childlike fear, which is the idea that your your home is not safe. That that there is that there is something if you kind of take it to its extremes, there is something really unsettling about the idea of a moral judge who can break into your house and uh you know will their actions will reflect on your behavior santa claus, santa claus is a horror monster i do believe you just activated one of today's trap cards no insert Yu-Gi-Oh sound effects here you triggered my trap card <laughs> <laughs> um, no but so so uh i'm glad i'm glad you mentioned santa claus being a horror monster leads me uh, to something I wanted to ponder about this film, and that's why evil mall Santas, right? This is, this is a common uh, holiday villain. There was, there was so, like, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, oh, my God, what is the other one? There are so many. There are so many movies that feature evil Santa Claus. Santa Claus is Santa Claus I. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that we, we have a really interesting thing here, and could this be the intersection of a classic inversion, right? Just something similar to the evil clown, a friendly and jovial figure that becomes demonic, right? And then beyond that, right, Santa Claus represents a departure from the chains of capitalism and into the beauty and joy of gift giving, right? Embodied uh, uh, by this figure, right, in these movies, right? A lot of these evil killer Santa Clauses are uh, elements of the working poor, right? They they are people uh, upon whose agony the capitalist success of the holidays is necessarily built and it is also uh, from whom it is denied mm-hmm. right so we have we have um this latent figure of class exploitation and a really like critical lambast of the system and we have also uh, uh the the fear of the wealthy and the fear of capitalists that would a gift economy be embraced, the entire system would be destroyed, which necessarily makes Santa evil in their, by their estimation. That's a really interesting point, but I want to kind of, I want to kind of challenge that just a little bit. Do it. Uh, so, evil mole Santas in particular, uh, <laughs> because, so, well, you said something really interesting, which is that, like gift giving exists outside of the capitalist economy, but this these are not Santas. These are people who have been hired to be Santas. They're the simulacra. Often by like large department stores, right? I mean, it, that's exactly what happens in the mm-hmm. case of this film. Uh, they decide on Christmas Eve that they're going to make a big deal around Christmas and they're going to hire more people and dress them up. And so, in a way, it's the co option of of labor to introduce capitalist exchange to kind of overtake the gift economy right it doesn't become about gift it becomes what have you bought for people yes that's so so to kind of like push what you were saying a bit like maybe then this is about the i i think you're i think you you make a really good point that this is about the corruption of a a ethical and hospitable ideal by Mm -hmm like capitalism itself yeah and like, i think that's yeah. the yeah that's the uh there's there's a duality to these evil santas right mm. because because like like you're 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 absolutely right that like uh the gift giving inside of christmas is not the gift giving of a gift economy right it's yeah. it's it's less about uh our love for our friends and family and and freely giving to them the, uh things they might want or things we feel that they would like to have 
and with, with no with no other strings attached and it's more about like oh the new iphone's out uh like or you're like oh i can oh yeah i can use this to upgrade my my whatever these christmas sales and it becomes more about like consumerism but i think that like there's a duality embodied by these evil santa clauses right and like i think yeah totally i think you, what, what you described is totally correct and it's kind of like the working class fear of these corrupted santa claus santa claus i right santa clauses since santa clauses since santa, well, santa well, yeah. plural you know, it's 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 about it, you know santa becomes instrumentalized by the department mm -hmm. school yep right Take your kids to see Santa is, is one thing. Take your kids to see Santa in the local department store and you have to walk them through the toy section yeah. where they get to say whether they've been good or not and whether they deserve certain presents. And Santa, Santa Claus slips entirely. them a little coupon book on the way out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, but I do I do think that like from the other perspective, like from the perspective of capital, right? You you have to try and co-opt and absorb Santa Claus because the gift giving of Santa Claus is 100% divorced from capitalist economies, right? Like Santa Claus makes toys uh, with, with magic and with elves. Yeah, in, in the kind of ideal, in the ideal. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he, yeah, he's idealized, right? He's, he's kind of like, like S S Santa Claus is a uh, full and extant socialism, right? <laughs> Just free, fully, freely gi giving fully toys. automated luxury Christmas socialism. <laughs> 100% accurate. So I think um, something that you mentioned that I want to dig a little bit deeper in is one of the other monsters in, in this movie, and that's Thomas's mother. Uh, yeah. in, in the beginning of the film, uh, after Thomas goes on his like like mock killing spree, and part, part of that is he imprisons and captures his grandfather. Yeah. And like like it's 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 played off as fun and childish. Like it's like it's a child going like, oh, I've caught you, grandpa. Time to go to breakfast. Yeah. And so it, but then we get to mom and mom is like hammering away on like stocks, trying to figure out what she's going to invest in next, reading the newspaper. And she's rushing off to a, a last minute business meeting. And what, what I find really interesting, right, is, is we get a little comment from Thomas and that's like, oh, are you going with your new business partner? But it's de delivered a yeah. little bitingly. And we come to learn that that's actually her boyfriend and uh, Thomas's uh, biological father is out of the picture. It died, actually. Yeah. And we, we get like. So, so there, there's a lot of family tension and the last minute meeting that Thomas's mom is rushing off to have is, is, is the meeting you were just describing where she's like, all of our cashiers need to dress in Christmas costumes. We need to hire uh, performers in the streets and find some Santa Clauses. And then like everyone else on the board is like, why didn't you say this a month ago? This is a ludicrous amount of planning for Christmas Eve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All of the, all of the execs make a really good point, which is like, Shouldn't we have talked about this already? <laughs> right. And, and her and her kind of like her her line, her reason why to do that now is like, oh, some children don't believe anymore. And it's because her son is he's 10 and he's starting to reach that point where like, oh, he's starting to question whether or not Santa Claus really exists. Is it really just mom? That's what his friends at school are saying. But mom is hell bent on him believing. Right. And her way to cure his lack of belief is to throw in a, in uh extravagant christmas themed party for people who shop at her store and 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 be completely absent from her son's life during christmas eve yeah absolutely because how do you i mean this is what we've been talking about in the book club book club episodes right this idea of commodity fetishism mm -hmm. like it's a it's this weird idea of of belief that you could you ascribe uh, non-material attributes to material objects, the non-material uh, attribute of value 
is is how we determine whether something is kind of worth anything at all not because of what it might do for us but because of its exchangeability with these other intangible commodities so i mean you know uh walter benjamin would talk about this in one of his unfinished part fragments that capitalism is a form of religion mm-hmm. and you know strikingly santa claus is is uh based on a saint on a saint figure saint nicholas right yeah uh, it's, santa claus is the intersection of like we we have cr- christian mythology we have like uh i like like european pagan faiths like we have so many mythologies mixing together to form this figure yeah but what capitalism has to do is what capitalism always does which is uh you know as marx put it dissolve all that is is fixed all of the the solid relationships between people and you instead you put in place a new faith a new form of belief and it's belief in in purchasing yep so 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 we lose saint nicholas we lose uh father christmas we lose sinterklaas and what we gain in their in the wake of these absences is uh the coca-cola santa yeah <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely absolutely correct and then like when you when you see like uh the traditional german santa wearing a green cloak or, mm-hmm. or you know, Santa riding a pig, or, or, or I'm sorry, Santa riding a goat is a, is one of the other traditional uh, beliefs, and then we completely lose the figures that are not marketable or not very marketable anyway. We lose, uh, we lose um, the Krampus. You know, we lose all these other like mythological figures that are Santa's inverse, because it's it's harder to put the Krampus on a Coca Cola and sell that during the Halloween the holiday season. Yeah, absolutely. So there is, there is, uh, she's very, she's very blasé about this whole thing as well, where she just goes, okay, you go to bed and I'm going to stay in the office until midnight because I want to hand over all of the money we've made to the, to the, um, to the cash van from the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and it isn't until, it isn't until nobody starts answering her phone calls that she, starts to worry that something might be wrong even though if you think about it surely everybody should be asleep <laughs> right and i mean like on top of that like the thing that's wrong was wrong before no one was answering the phone calls yeah you know, the, the, thing, the thing that's wrong is yeah her her position inside of the machinery of capitalism is alienating her from her son and her her son is suffering deeply for this yeah absolutely like I think, and I think that that parallels really well with Home Alone, right? Because uh, Kevin McAllister gets gets uh, left Home Alone because mom mom and dad are trying to juggle this massive family vacation to France, right? And we we get the idea that like you know uh, the McAllisters are set, you know they live in a posh Chicago suburb, things are doing yeah. okay there, but they're not they're not ultra wealthy, right? They're they're, they're just slightly more successful working class people. And in the shuffle, they completely forget one of the like thirty-eight children they have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, and so and so like like Home Alone makes it more of like okay, like this is the struggle of the working poor, right? Like there's so much you have to deal with that by and by you will eventually forget the people close to you. Whereas uh, Dial Dial Code Santa is kind of the inverse. I mean, I, I I don't know if I would go so far as to call the McAllisters the working poor. Like, okay, I, I, the working poor, I, I, the working poor, but they are working class. Like, like I don't think that they're. Are they? Are they like? I'm, I'm remembering if we like where were they? Because they're okay. I don't. They're they're clearly not like hurting, but but we don't like, we don't get a point is, where it's like, honey, a, the stocks a, are so high. 
No, that's true. That's not mentioned. But like, I think I think it's very reasonable to say that they are kind of like the su- success, like the stereotypical image of successful middle class bourgeois suburbia. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're they're like an exploration of that that identity, right? But they don't. I mean, like they don't have a, a giant mansion. You know, they don't have staff. You know. Yeah, exa- yeah, yeah, yeah. But whereas whereas this film, they do. Yeah, whereas um, in this film, Thomas is is part of the ultra rich. You know, landed gentry almost. Well, actually, right. no, the kind of the definitely the the capitalist class. Yeah, yeah, like like mom mom is a is a stockbroker slash CEO, head of the board of directors or something. She's she's a high power business person who has climbed very high into the ladder, perhaps was born into the position. Yeah, exactly. And so I do think that's a really interesting point that the way that uh that kind of um accumulated wealth is both protective but also alienating. You know, it's very telling that it's just grandpa and him in the main house. There's nobody yeah. else. There's no one else there. Yeah, there's you know, no but, other there's no other family that's been invited over to this massive opulent mansion for Christmas Eve. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a hugely telling choice. And I think the mansion itself becomes a really interesting space because uh, you've, you've touched on this already. There's that amazing sequence where it, you know, the camera pans up and you see it as a kind of maze that he's trapped in. There's the eyes underneath the fl- uh, underneath uh, in the kind of floor. Um, he's constantly getting lost. There are these strange uh, secret corridors and tunnels that he's created. But the, the, the entirety of the film is about the impossibility of getting out. You know, it's this mm-hmm. incredibly well protected space. But when you when you're in there, you can't get out. <laughs> Right, right. All, I mean, all, like all you can do is you can go deeper in. Did did dial code Santa Claus just just deliver the best possible explanation of Hegel's master slave dialectic? Because <laughs> I I think it did with with, with a little with a little uh, Foucault everything is a prison spice thrown on top. Uh, for people who may not be aware, do you want to want to lay out the the master slave? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so here's, here's here's okay. Like, um, let me know. Let me know if this is a fair spark notes, right? But uh, Hegel's Hegel's idea for for like the master slave relationship is that, um, <clears throat> traditionally the master is seen as the dominant role, the one who's in charge, the one who has all the power. Uh, but by and by, the master becomes so dependent on the labor of the slave that the master himself becomes the real slave. Mm-hmm. It's just not recognized uh, uh, commonly that that is the actual relationship, and that's that's like a one sentence. What I would do a one sentence pitch of of Hegel's master slave relationship. Uh, does does mean, that sound fair, reasonable for for a one sentence pitch? <laughs> yeah, totally. This idea that actually uh, sense of self and self recognition become so bound up in our position vis a vis others yeah. that in many ways we become dependent on the others to make sense of ourselves in the first mm-hmm. place. So like getting out becomes impossible because what does it mean about you? If you no longer have the great mansion with all of its uh, wealth, privilege and protection. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, so that, that leads me into something that I really want to talk about. Right. And we yeah, made, we made, we, we made, we made some jokes about Thomas dressing as Rambo and kind of playing at being a Rambo style figure. 
but I really want to dig into that, right? Because like like Kevin McAllister goes through a similar thing where he suits up to fight back, mm-hmm. you know. But but yep. for him, it's like he he lays out the the family train set and puts some cardboard cutouts and mannequins on it, so it looks like people are dancing at a party. You know, yeah. he, he 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 turns the movie to to the point where like the mob boss has a shootout and lights some fireworks. You know, yeah. it's it's very it's childish and, and fun. But like Thomas's uh, kind of meshing into the figure of Rambo is is very complete and very deep. It lacks like he like um he has a bandolier of uh like a darts like for like a toy dart gun. But outside of that, like he he makes like an improvised grenade. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, he he's making serious murder weapons, you know? And the movie plays it seriously. And I think um one of the things that I wanted to get into there is like So Thomas suiting up as Rambo represents this um ideological shift required uh by the element of the workforce that exists solely to repress kind of the poor and the working class, right? Like the Santa Claus in this in this film is clearly in need of some very serious mental health care. Yeah, right? like this. This movie is relying on on kind of like as we've discussed many times, like one of the worst tropes in horror that people who are uh, suffering from mental illness or mental disability are are inherently criminal and evil and predisposed to violence. Yeah, and and like that's that's something that this movie plays into. So the Santa Claus clearly needs help, you know. Yeah. And um, he's also uh, this condition is ex- exacerbated by his economic insecurity. Right, like our our Santa Claus is portrayed as a bit of a drifter. You know, he's getting a job as a temporary mall Santa for a night. You know, the guy probably isn't doesn't have a very secure background to fall onto. Yeah, he's not pulling he's not pulling down big money. Right. Yeah. And um, so so Thomas, who previously fantasized uh, at as being Rambo, must now seriously take on that level of violence to counter this rage that his own family is is somewhat directly and indirectly responsible for. Right, like uh, he must, he must kind of like abandon his uh, child, childlike innocence and his naivete, right, and and seriously use this violence he was formerly playing at to to continue the cycle of violence that is necessary for the establishment of the kind of wealth he's from. I mean, I think that's a really good read, um, and I think I think the film makes some really interesting points about what is the individual capacity for violence? Yes. Because like, yes, yes. like you say, he, he takes this really seriously. And he says that like he, he straight up tells uh, the, this murder Santa that he's going to kill him. Yep. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting question, a kind of really hard ethical question as well about what is the, what is the, What's the what's the what's the potential within the individual? What's the potential within within children to do incredibly violent, destructive things? And I think linking it to the fact that kind of class systems depend upon violence, even if it's obfuscated or made into systemic or background violence, as Zizek would call it, I think that's a really good read. And I think that one of the things that makes it really interesting for me is we get that scene where uh, Thomas is on the roof. And, yeah. and the uh, the evil Santa Claus has chased him out onto the roof, and like it's really precarious. And and Thomas is like, I think he's like barefoot, walking on the edge of of the roof of this giant mansion, and it's covered in snow. And he's like crying out for his mother. Yeah. But you know she she's off on business, right? Like the the uh, machinations of capitalism have taken his mother away for the night. 
leaving leaving him alone and like alone with his fear and his like it, it is a really potent scene and i think um thomas's character is really interesting right because he gets two opportunities to shoot and kill the intruder yeah and both times he he can't bring himself to to take someone's life he can't bring himself to to go there and to actually do it even though uh there is there is a sequence where thomas locks the mall santa in a uh, like a sauna in their in-home gym yeah and, yeah, and yeah. crank cranks the heat up to murder <laughs> you know like like the dial the dial goes from comfortable to sweating to the oldies to you're gonna die <laughs> yeah like and the santa yeah, is trapped I'm, and left I'm gonna for dead. Try, and, try and broil you alive right and, and we, we do have like like the, the the movie i think is like challenging us really deeply here because uh, we have a young boy and his uh, disabled grandfather who are kind of being victimized by this home invasion. But the the home invader only only exists in the first place because the societal position occupied by this family uh, makes necessary that you're right, as Zizek said, that kind of background violence. Yeah, that's that, that causes people like like the only reason why we don't have this kind of health care is because people hoard wealth. Yeah. The only reason you have so many who are dependent on subsistence wages or who are in this kind of economic need, you know, is also is also because of because of this systemic hoarding of wealth. Right. And obviously, like like uh, the, the, like on the literal level, Thomas and his grandfather are in the right. Right. Like, like if you view this text, the text of the film completely literally. Yeah. This, this is this is a deranged psycho killer attacking a child and an old man like of course the child and the old man are in the clear to fight back but like mm-hmm. he, when you when you dig into kind of like the metaphorical layer of the text that's when all this ambiguity starts to kick in at least for me in my reading of it yeah absolutely and the, the same thing i would say is true for home alone because on the literal level like you fucking get him get him kevin McAllister, portrayed by macaulay culkin come on my podcast <laughs> but, <laughs> but um I, I will I will wear rabbit ears for for podcasting <laughs> if that's what it takes. But like, but yeah, like like so so in the end, on the literal text is like a boy defending himself against home invaders. But when you when you when you move to that next m- metaphorical level, you have the same text we have in Dial Code Santa Claus, and that's like you we have a society that creates bandits that that are in yeah. an economic position that requires them to continue to do these robberies, right? You know, because the work's not there, the healthcare's not there, the debt's not there, the opportunity was never there, right? We have that kind of like sliding factor going on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think it's I think it's really telling that um, it's not until there's a real threat to, to him that he suddenly goes, "Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna I'm gonna use whatever means are necessary to secure things for myself." Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what else, what else about this movie? Is there anything you wanted to bring up? Uh, Oh, should we talk about grandpa and the end? Ooh, we have to talk about, okay. So let's, um, so, so for the audience who might not have seen this movie, I think it was just officially, (laughs) yeah, I think it was just officially released this, this year, but you might've like, you might've seen it in a bootleg VHS or like a VHS rip. Like those have been floating around the internet for a while now, but yeah. yeah. But yeah, so for, for the audience who might not be aware of obscure eighties French cinema, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. How like, 
so so every now and then i'll mention to to somebody that i'm into like obscure foreign films and they'll be like oh were you this art house piece and i'm like no 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 dial code santa claus (laughs) yeah yeah it's a film about uh, a kid who uh, tries to murder santa um obviously who who hasn't seen that right so okay so for for our, our our listeners who who is grandpa Sorry. Oh, <laughs> so for for our listeners who haven't seen the show, uh, who who is Thomas's grandfather? Could you give a little background to to our, yeah, to our yeah. uh, so, intrepid uh, hero? He is um, staying with the family. He is uh, quite old and seems to be quite frail, um, mm-hmm. di- diabetic, and is basically sort of hidden away by Grandpa at various uh, by Thomas at various points. Um, yeah so that he can be protected yep. um and he seems he seems basically benign but maybe a little bit sort of like can't really do very much anymore his eyes are not very good yeah um but the, the two of them care very much about each other they, they, they do have like a very i really liked their relationship I, you, you know, know i think it's it's very it's sweet pretty, it's beautiful yeah it's, yeah and it it seems very real it's it's yeah it's really wholesome and like it makes sense that if mom is constantly away uh doing doing stock trading and and kind of devoting her life to to her position in the board of directors that like you know grandpa would kind of fill in as as the absentee parent and they would develop that really close bond that that would have been between thomas and his mother so so the we get to we get to the kind of moment at the end which is so uh, to protect his grandfather and to keep him hidden, uh, he has somehow managed to put his grandfather in a suit of armor, mm-hmm. which is which is standing in the hall, and um, he he tells him to stay still. And then uh, there is there is a gun right at the end, uh, and as our Santa is walking towards the terrified Thomas, we see it from the grandpa's point of view, and there's this kind of haze. And he just says, Thomas, get down, and pulls the trigger. And that is how our, our slasher killer meets his end. Granddad blows Santa Claus away. <laughs> yeah, and I think, like, like so, so the, the, the setup here is really, really, really good, right? Because we get all these scenes where, like, Thomas is signaled as being the one who's going to make the kill. You know, yeah, Thomas is the, building all the, the death traps. He's the one. He's yeah. the one who builds the grenades. He, and... he has tons of toy guns around him all the time, and he's constantly using them, right? So it's it's signaling that he knows how to handle a weapon. Yeah, and then, yeah, like, yeah. We, we, we get a scene early on where Thomas is repairing an old car, mm-hmm. and, and he's hanging out with Grandpa, and they're, they're just having some fun back and forth, you know? And then uh, Thomas is like, could you hand me a wrench? And, like, Grandpa, even with his glasses on, like, his, his vision is, is, is severely impaired, and it's very blurry. And he's kind of he's holding one of the tools, and he's like, oh, "Are you sure you don't want a screwdriver?" <laughs> and he just kind of hands him what he thinks is a wrench. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, it really sets up that grandfather's vision is very poor. That like, uh, he's also he's also really struggling with his diabetes, right? Like, we get a line where like, yeah, uh, he needs his he needs his insulin. Yeah, and but we get we get a very specific line that I think is kind of important to the discourse with that, and that like when mom is leaving, she's like, "Okay, Thomas, make sure he takes his his insulin." And then Granddad is like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna take it. It's just like water for me, like like signaling that he he's very bad at keeping up with his medication." Mm-hmm. Yeah, which also plays into him, like because we get that scene where Thomas has to like spike him with the insulin towards the end to kind of bring him back. Uh, yeah, 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 definitely, because he he seems to be sort of 
uh, I think it, you know it's uh, it's hypoglycemia. You know he's mm. he's he's not doing too well, and it it seems like this might be the end for 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 Grandpa. Yeah, yeah, and like, oh man, I just love I love that ending so much because we we see it from from Granddad's perspective, so the vision is all hazy and blurred out, and like uh, you, you, oh, I was I was just gonna say that like like you feel a lot of tension and desperate, or at least I felt like that, that scene I was yeah, on the edge yeah. of my seat because yeah, it was so just, tense and so desperate because like we're looking at this from Grandpa's perspective and he cannot tell who he's shooting at, he's just hoping no, that he's gonna hit the right one. It's a really good scene. It's a really good scene, and like you say, really tense. Um, and that you know, there's very much heart in mouth. And if there was going to be like a dark ending, I was expecting, you know, I was expecting the worst possible ending, which oh, I don't right, know. Yeah, yeah, because I was expecting Grandpa can't see. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a horror movie. Maybe this is going to end one particular way, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah, I mean they already killed the dog earlier though. I think going going for the double would have been a bit a bit intense. I mean, yes, but it would have been I I would not have been shocked by it. So yeah, I would have been less surprised, yeah. So I had I had I had a thought about the ending. Yeah. Um, which uh kind of does undercut a little bit about, about what we're talking about and you can tell me if you think this is just nonsense. But <laughs> uh this is what it made me think of. Mm-hmm. So the the French uh, Maoist philosopher Alain Badiou um, wrote a book addressed to kind of like young people in France on philosophy as a way of life. And he made the point that there were two groups of, of people, two demographics of people, culturally speaking, that feel hugely kind of alienated and ignored. Um, one is the young who are stuck in a kind of perpetual adolescence not having any kind of like move into mature adulthood anymore and second is the elderly who are often completely ignored told they aren't useful are often marginalized and and treated very poorly in society and um he said it would not be too difficult to imagine a kind of revolutionary movement made up of both of these groups uh one of whom would would demand to be taken seriously to be treated with the dignity and respect that age affords them and have a chance to pass on their knowledge and experience and the other which would want a kind of moment of rite of passage a chance to kind of assume full mature adult responsibility and so watching this ending i was like well what do we have here we have we have the child that was sobbing on the roof for its mother like facing down the kind of monster and we have the the wisdom and experience of of the kind of paternal grandfather figure there to 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 help to help save the day uh so alan badio would like the ending (laughs) (laughs) i mean like it's it sounds it sounds like that that kind of read comports exactly to the ending of the film like I, I definitely don't think you're 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 way out there with that read i think that's pretty solid and defensible within the text but it's an interesting idea, right? That actually maybe another way that we could look at this instead of looking at it as a kind of solely a class metaphor, right? And, and if this is a kid's movie, maybe it's a mistake to think of it as in strictly kind of economist terms. Maybe mm-hmm. we could think of this in terms of like, you know, uh, like a house is a mansion to a child, right? Yeah. You know, especially if you have a maybe slightly bigger than average house. Especially if you have and, a literal mansion, yes. <laughs> uh 
but you know, it's it, there's an element of of the of of kind of like fantasy, and I don't mean that in terms of unrealistic, but in terms of like you know the projection of the idealized what would my childhood be like if I was going to watch a movie about me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe that's another way that we could read this. It's I think about, I, I, it's about a kind of rite of passage moment, right? Oh yeah, like, yeah. I was I was just going to say exactly that. That like the 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 opening of the film is is a young a young boy on the cusp of adolescence playing at being a soldier, and the the end of the movie is is a, a young boy faced with the horror that is that transition. You know, he's he's moving into a different phase of his life, and like you know, like like. You're you're reaching a very special time in your life, young Thomas, where a lot of changes are going to be happening. <laughs> and the the film the film really kind of signals and explores the the tension behind that. Well, one of the very final lines of the film is he says to his mother, yes. who's arrived back at the house, "It was my fault. I wanted to see Santa Claus. I mm-hmm. wanted to see him. This is this is my fault." Because there, in in voiceover, you hear like people have been saying, "Oh, if you stay up and and try and watch Santa Claus." Like if you try and see him, he turns into an ogre. He yep. turns into a into a monster, and so he's learned what happens when you kind of like no longer ascribe to that those kind of beliefs and fantasies of childhood. So he's it like he has. If you were to read it from a more kind of psychoanalytic point of view, you know that's exactly what's happened. The essential truth, you know, it's not literally true, obviously, but the essential truth of that childhood myth has been substantiated. And so the mythic content can be left behind and you can move forward into into maturity because he, you know, he's seen Santa Claus now. So he's seen through it, as it were. I, def- I definitely like that read. And I think like there, there there's something in- interesting how this film necessarily portrays that through trauma, you know, because we, we have... Yeah. Kind of uh, another depiction of Thomas in the film. Thomas has a little buddy, and I'm forgetting his name. <laughs> oh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the the kid is portrayed as being kind of like a, kind of a jerk, right? Like Kevin McAllister's older brother. Yeah. Uh, in Home Alone, right? Like the, the he's a, he, he seems like a little bit of a, he's a few years older, and he's not necessarily a bully, but just kind of like a little, just a jerk. And yeah. like he's constantly telling uh, him that he's like his ideas are, are stupid and that yeah, and Santa's, Santa's not real. Not real. What are you yeah. doing? But it, but he's gone. He's gone through this transition already, and he's gone through it without the massive violence necessary for Thomas himself to go through it. Yeah. And I, I, th- I think I think that that begs uh, a greater question within the text of the film: is why is this level of violence either necessary, inevitable? Or perhaps demanded by Thomas's conditions. Well, I Which think it's, it's a very it's, big question. I think it's a demand, and I think that's where you link it back to, like, what does what does it mean to be an adult when you are possessed of this kind of wealth and privilege? Yes, yeah, and I, I was I was actually going to say that, like, I, I think it's it's almost necessary, right? Because we have like like Elon Musk is a child. You know, yeah. like he he has he has access to a level of wealth that is comical. You know, he yeah, can snap absolutely. his fingers and end any number of world problems and still be one of the richest men alive. And he spends his time making flamethrowers and dumb-looking cars and uh, weird trucks and and being sued by heroic rescue divers because he can't stop tweeting. He's so online. He's so the man is so online. And it's just like it's just like there there there's kind of like 
why I think Thomas has to be exposed to this level of violence is that like Kevin McAllister is kind of in the exact same situation that Thomas is in, right? Like his yeah. his being alone is because like my favorite parts of Home Alone are are when when Kevin has to do adult things, right? When he has to he has to buy food, he has to he has to cook for him, he has to like because t- like, the first couple of days he's just partying. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. any any kid left with the keys would be, but over time he like he he realizes that like okay, there's a lot to being an adult, right? That that he never understood and he never got right. So he appreciates his parents more and he learns how to like take care of himself and he goes to church and like yeah, it goes yeah, it does the, the grocery shopping scene I think is one of my favorites. Right? Yeah, and like like that and the church sequence in that movie is just fucking beautiful, and like we we get all of that stuff and then like that's how he kind of makes that transition right and like yes kevin McAllister is like i'll I'll use economically secure to kind of describe the condition of that family right it doesn't look like they're super worried but it definitely looks like this big family vacation is an incredibly financially stressful event for them yeah yeah and like so so they're they're in that situation right they're 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 not hurting but they don't have the economic freedom to just go to france on a whim you know and then, like he he tr- he moves into adulthood. He sheds kind of a lot of this child childlike stuff through a, a comical conflict with two comical villains. But then Thomas, who is one hundred percent part of like this kind of like like almost like the descendant of the planter class, you know, someone who is ultra wealthy, yeah, like necessarily encounters a greater violence to make the same conclusion. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, or something <laughs> and i think i think that i think the idea that, that that's um i i think we've said this before that like actually being super wealthy like i can't imagine what that must do to your to, to your brain i mean uh, elon musk demonstrates that that is not the most healthy thing to do or to be um and you know there is there is a degree of difference the children of the super rich basically live a completely different level of existence to the rest of us mm-hmm. so maybe that's another way of thinking about the kind of violence in there as well yeah yeah i mean like we we, we talked about this in our last book club episode available to patrons our wonderful supporters thank you very much uh, patreon.com <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah so subtle subtle uh so you guys like, you you are listening. We have a Patreon. The link's in the thing. Please click it and give us money so I can buy things like rent. <laughs> <laughs> so I can afford the disgusting podcaster opulence that is that is having a bedroom and a house, there, an apartment that I can live in. But, um, I, I think what's, what's kind of really interesting about what we're talking about and what we're saying is that... Um, oh, yeah. So uh, our book club, our, our last book club episode, right? Mm-hmm. We, we were talking about how like... Um, we're we're going through David McNally's Monsters of the Market, and we're talking about how like um, some some African cultures kind of traditionally view the hoarding of we- of wealth as creating like a negative psychic energy, yeah, that that poisons the surrounding environment, it poisons the person who holds it, and and that that wealth needs to be moved into the community in order to cool or like like negate that that psychic evil, mm-hmm. and and restore balance. And I think that like. This is kind of what we're seeing here, right? Like Kevin Kevin McAllister has a certain level of wealth and privilege, but it's not something that is un, unbelievable. You know, he's, he's kind of like an average suburban kid who's economically secure, 
and then like but like that that nevertheless is a modicum of wealth hoarding and so in, in comes like this evil force that's drawn in by that and then like thomas just gets it so much worse yeah i think so um and i think yeah that goes some way to talking about like what what is a rite of passage for the super rich it it does depend on are you willing to use the necessary violence to defend your position uh Another great 80s horror film that talked about this is Brian Usner's Society. Yep. Um, Brian, come on the show. <laughs> Brian, Brian, Brian Usner, Macaulay Culkin, uh, please. <laughs> uh, please do come on the show. But this idea that, like, actually this, the, these levels of wealth uh, are, are kind of dangerous for uh, your sort of psychological well-being, as it were, I think is actually... You know, it, it, it kind of draws you into a world of exploitation and violence that you will end up willingly mm-hmm. continuing. Yep. I think is I think is really, really true. Yeah, and I think I think that's like one of the darker lessons of this movie is like that's that that's what the ending uh, uh kind of needs or that's how the ending needed to be in this film. It, that cycle of violence needed to continue. Although I do think um uh that there's like a hopeful a bit of hope. It's like all all great Christmas horror stories have a bit of hope at the end, right? Yeah. Like for for Scrooge, there 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 is a window of redemption that he can walk through. You know, he he can reconnect to the community. He can he can distribute his wealth to the Cratchits, and he can like he can start to lift people back up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And like and like 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 yes, we could get into how that's kind of an incomplete critique, and like Dickens was, um, as we would say, liberal. And, and you know it's a very meritocracy and all this kind of stuff is embedded into to the christmas carol but in uh dial code santa claus we have we have something very similar because thomas can't pull the trigger thomas himself can't bring uh can't bring himself to that position where he continues that cycle of violence right he, he is he is um emotionally or morally or uh by maturation unable to to commit to it and yeah. I, I think you know we we could we could read that as him being like he's just not ready yet you know another couple of years of indoctrination and he'll be pulling triggers willy nilly, but we could also read that as like that that that's hope that inherent to to the human condition is not this level of violence that there's something there, there's something greater there's something more giving. Yeah, and I think I think it's really telling that like he's got plenty of toy guns, but using a real one is is not something he's able to do. Yeah, it's a bridge too far. You know, there's a level of like we're happy with violence uh, at a distance or like mediated through cultural form or through play, but like yeah, it gets it gets very real. And you know, uh, it's I think from that point of view, then it's quite telling that we see it from the grandfather's point of view. So like, what we see is we see the haze, we see this kind of obscured field of vision. So mm-hmm. even there, with its real violence, we don't have unmediated access to it it's kept away from us as well yeah yeah and i i really like that too and like a, a lot of the violence the, the only bit of violence we see that's really drawn out is the violence against the dog yeah and that's just yeah. it's just so dark and, and even when because um i think uh kind of the last thing i want to bring up as we wrap this up is that like thomas himself gets stabbed yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, by 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 the same pie server that got the dog earlier mm-hmm. yeah and like i I found that to be like incredibly traumatic because we don't, we do not get this in movies, right? No, right. Harming, no. harming dogs and harming children is kind of like the, a line that Hollywood just never crosses. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Especially you, you, in, a, in a Christmas film. Yeah, yeah. Like the the dog always lives, but um, I you know if it like it, I know there are quite a few websites that do this. You know, they do. do the, does the dog survive? Yeah, and it's yeah. like in in this case, I'm afraid the answer is no. Yeah, this is this is a rare and like usually if if a child or a dog is going to be killed or injured in a film. It's a very serious, very emotional, and very wrought piece. It's very difficult to move through. Yeah, absolutely. Right? But you this... know, it's, it's it's highbrow. But this is this is pre-home alone. <laughs> yeah, and this is resolutely not highbrow. Right, but it's definitely like um. This is I guess like uh, on a more critical sense when Thomas gets stabbed, it is the point of transition for him from yeah, from is... being. Oh, I was I was just gonna say like from from being playing at Rambo to being a real Rambo, right? We get the we get the scene where he's like dressing his wound and like he's looking mad and serious, and then yeah. he escalates the violence and then he escalates the situation. He puts Granddad in the suit of armor, right? Everybody is 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 escalating their commitment to the violence after that point. Um. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's that scene where he's kind of like he makes himself a splint, yeah, uh, out of like a piece of wood and with a and sort of straps himself up and it's it's very much like here's the moment where it gets real it no longer it's, becomes it, a I mean, game it feels so much like first blood yeah, and it like, really does it really and I re- does and the, the, that's one of my favorite things about this movie is like there it, 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 there are so many beats that just make it feel like first blood like if first blood was a little boy yeah absolutely i i mean if you want if you want a uh a kind of Chris, a, a seasonal, a seasonal horror film treat that is essentially Home Alone crossed with First Blood. Then this is this is what you should watch. Yes, <laughs> and, and, and definitely, I, did not, I didn't know that that was something that I needed until having seen this film. <laughs> right. And I definitely like like oh man I just, I just want to want to thank again our conversation with uh, JG Michael of Parallax Views, uh, and we'll link to their show in the show notes. But uh, I just want to thank the recent conversation with them for like jogging my memory on this film and inspiring this episode, uh, because this this movie like it definitely needs more attention. Like this movie is critically underserved because like I think um, I'm worried we might have portrayed it as like a like a B like like a schlock like a B horror movie. But this is like this movie is very like serious in its tone. It's very well executed. Like this this is just a very good movie. Yeah, I mean I think. I think we we hopefully we can bring some more attention to it. Um, it's it's something that I think absolutely deserves to be a cult classic. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the, there's, this this movie is well worth revisiting. Like there's it has aged really well and in really interesting ways. And like it's a it's a tight seventy minutes. It's it's filmed really well. It's paced incredibly. Like it's it's to the point where like when when we were we were talking before we were recorded and really the only complaints we had were just like these tiny little nitpicky things, yeah yeah that we we, we would have tweaked to tighten it up and you can find those in any movie right like like outside Definitely. of that this this film is solid. Uh yeah absolutely and if you have not seen it if you want to if you want to your to find a new favorite spooky Christmas movie, I can't recommend this one highly enough. Yeah, I'm definitely going to pick up the Blu-ray release now and hopefully it's got some behind the scenes and maybe some interviews and I can like really dig into what happened with this movie. And yeah, thanks again to JG Michael from Parallax Views for our conversation on spooky uh, Christmas horror, um, which should be out later this month. Um, But as Ash said, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, I think that's a good place to, to, to wrap things up. 
Yeah, it's a good it's a good time to stop the beginning of uh, spreading some holiday drear to our audience. There is just one thing, though. There is just one thing that I think we should probably mention on the show. Yes. Uh, which is that we have passed the first anniversary. Yes. Of, oh my God, we haven't talked about event. that on the show yet. Can, can you believe? Yeah, we've not talked about this on the show, but can you believe Holy it? Holy shit! We've been here for we, over a year now. We've been doing this show for a for a whole year. Um, which is, I genuinely, I genuinely don't believe that. Um, Neither do it, I. <laughs> it is mind blowing that, uh, uh, I think the show has been listened to in total something like 95,000 times. Yes. Yes. Um, it was, it was 95.5 this morning when I looked at it. Uh, so uh any 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 highlight any anything from the last year that we that you you kind of sticks in your mind uh, honestly like <laughs> um y- this is a meme but it's really the friends we made along the way you know like 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 i i've loved all the movies we've talked about i've learned so much by doing this show with you and like constantly having to like read ma- small mountains of books to keep up with like your your like encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of theory and philosophy um, um that, is, that is very kind so so that's great like like we've we've grown as friends too our friendship bond has become stronger through spooky discourse hell yeah but then like <laughs> but then like you know like uh you know we've met amazing people like mexi from mexi youtube connor habib from against everyone with connor habib jg michael parallax views we mentioned a few times nestor from black banner magic Nesta. Right, uh, uh, all of the uh, the guys from Struggle Session. Like oh these. yeah, yeah, Struggle Sessions. Jake Flores, like all of these amazing people. Um, Le- uh, Lila Taylor. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like all of these incredible people, uh, I-, I probably would have never talked to or engaged with if it wasn't for the pretext of having a spooky podcast. And like, it's so cool that like, like I regularly talk with some of them now and like, like, ah, it's just, that's, that's my personal highlight is that like, do the show I've made new friends. So there's some, there's some wholesome uh, holiday cheer to bring to you all. Um, yes. So just to, just to echo it really, it's, it's been, it has been a privilege. Uh, I have regularly felt completely out of my depth in terms of your, knowledge of culture but i have learned a great deal uh, <laughs> that's the best way anyone has ever said that i watch a lot of terrible movies uh but I, I i really do think that we've learned a lot from one another this show has has been uh, uh just wild that it's that it's stuck around for as long as it has um, yeah. but i think as it is the year anniversary thank you thank you thank you to anyone who has supported the show for no matter how long through uh patreon and it uh, has been the way that we've been able to slowly upgrade the show, spend a little bit more time on what we do. Uh, we have some really big plans for 2020. So if you have enjoyed really the first big plans. year, if you have enjoyed the first year of Horror Vanguard, please do think about going to patreon.com slash horror Vanguard and supporting the show for just a few bucks a month it gets you loads of cool bonus features it will get you early access to everything that we, we have got coming up um but thank you so much for listening for this whole first very spooky year and may there be many more yes i am and for those of you who have uh stuck through the final few minutes where we where we plug the patreon and all that stuff I wanted to especially thank you for finishing out the full length of the episode, <laughs> but also, but also for everyone who's still here, 
uh, a little bit of secret information uh, for you for being so kind to listen through the Patreon plug. Uh, we're we're going to have a lot of uh, spooky surprises and presents, presents for you, our dear listeners, coming out uh, this December. So enjoy the holiday season as we get rolling with a bunch of spooky nonsense. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay, stay spooky. spooky.